This is a very special microphone. <laughs> it records sounds up to 11. Normal microphones only record up to 10. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> here we go. Hello, everyone. It's your host, Stacia. Uh, you're about to hear my third chat with the notorious RBP. That's right. Rachel Barton Pine has come back to the program, this time to talk about Paganini, who was basically, from what I understand, uh, a classical music proto-goth. You're going to learn everything you never knew you needed to know, or maybe you did know that you needed to know, about caprices. I hope you like our conversation. If you do, wander on over to iTunes, rate us and write us a review. You can do it in iambic pentameter. You can do it in haiku. Um, you can write in short form prose if you like. Just make sure that you do it. Thanks a lot and enjoy this program. There's a rumor going around that classical music can be hoity-toity. But here in the classical classroom, we beg to differ. Beethoven 5. <laughs> the idea that classical music is a zone where we have to feel restricted or we have to act in a certain way, you know, that's not going to be helpful going forward. <laughs> Isaiah is shaking with excitement oh, here. I mean, there's just so many great parts of the opera. He asked me to play his favorite spot in the first moon of the Brahms. And then he said, I started using those licks in my guitar solos how to be classical music rock stars because there's not enough of that in this business. Occasionally I would plug in the mandolin to my distortion pedals. <laughs> I don't change my voice. And talking to classical I, music. <laughs> I'm playing classical music now. I mean, it's, it's yeah. the same 12 notes. That's what's so cool about it. I'm Daisha Clay, a classical music newbie, and I'm trying to learn all I can about the music. Come learn with me and the classical music experts I invite into the classical classroom. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and uh, joining Classical Classroom for a whopping third time from Mystery Street Recording in Chicago today, the inimitable, that is a hard word to say, inimitable Rachel Barton Pine. Rachel, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Great to be back. So just a bit about Rachel. In the classical music world, they refer to people like her technically as badasses. Uh, since debuting with the Chicago Symphony at the tender age of 10, she's set about dominating the violin dojo. She tours worldwide with every well-known orchestra you can probably think of. She's a big fan of the rock and roll music, playing with the metal band Earth and Grave. She's just added to her catalog of recordings with a new album called Bel Canto Paganini, 24 Caprices and Other Works for Solo Violin. So, Rachel, I think to start off, you've got to tell me a little bit about Paganini, just, just the basics, like who was he, where did he come from, all that good stuff. Yeah, so Paganini uh, lived 200 years ago. He's rightfully considered to be the world's first rock star because he, you know, had long hair, dressed all in black, had lots of groupies. Um, he took virtuosity to a level that had had never been achieved before. Um, definitely standing on the shoulders of some of his predecessors like Pietro Lacatelli, but um, doing pyrotechnical tricks at the instrument that nobody before had ever attempted or even thought possible. And the funny thing is, when people saw him doing all of this seemingly impossible stuff, they said he must have sold his soul to be able to play like that. 
I don't know why people are so superstitious. They would think that good things must come from below instead of above. But in any case, um, <laughs> it definitely fit with his whole bad boy persona. Um, he actually had a disease called Marfan syndrome, the same disease that Abraham Lincoln had, which oh, is why wow. both men have that gaunt look to their face. Not a disease you would want because it uh, impacts your internal organs negatively, but mm-hmm. um, it makes your joints and ligaments looser. And so mm-hmm. Paganini, in a sense, had deformed hands, which allowed him to contort and reach things that people with mere healthy hands wow. um, would have a harder time doing. But it wasn't just his disease that caused him to do all of this amazing stuff on the instrument. He had to have you know, had a genius imagination to have thought of those things in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so we think of him, you know, remembering him for his, f- you know, f- incredible flying fingers and his flashy virtuosity, but that wasn't the totality of who he was as an artist. Um, in fact, he came from the same time and place as some of the great opera composers like Rossini, Verdi, Donizetti, Bellini, and um, he was really transferring that vocal style to the violin. Mm-hmm. Rossini said if Paganini were to write opera, he would put the rest of us out of business. <laughs> and so that's how highly those guys regarded Paganini as a composer of melody. Yeah. And so the, I think the lyrical side of his playing is as much the reason that women swooned at his concerts as the fact that he was knocking their socks off with his you know, wild pyrotechnics because, you know, fast playing, shredding on the instrument, as you would say in the electric guitar world, Mm -hmm. you know, after a, after a while, you know, that's, it becomes more of the same, but I think he really touched people's hearts. And it's very revealing that in his 24 caprices, um, which is one of the touchstones of the violin repertoire, he actually dedicated the set of little miniature gems to, quote unquote, all the artists. So I think he was not only making a statement about the possibilities of what you could do physically on the violin, but also the fact that he was expanding the violin's range of tone colors and expressive uh, possibilities. Wow. And, you know, each one has a different character, a different personality, and he creates so many moods through um, these techniques that he developed. So I'm I'm really interested in this guy already. I mean, so he's he's got long hair, he's wearing black, and he's playing amazing. Like obviously, he probably would have been in a metal band today. <laughs> and and like, who was he hanging out with? Who were his? Who was influencing him? Who else was making music around this time? That's a great question. I mean, you know, sometimes we almost think of Paganini as existing outside of our normal delineations of periods of music mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, his virtuosity is sort of timeless. But um, in fact, he comes from what you would call the late classical, early romantic era. So, uh, you know, generation before, um, you know, guys like Vignowski, Vuitton, um, you know, some of the more um, you know, the, the, the artists that you would play their music with a, a richer sound, a more bombastic quality. Mm. Um, Paganini uh, had a lightness of touch. Um, and in fact, for this recording, I actually used the same kind of bow that Paganini had, huh. which is an early modern bow. It's lighter and springier than our fully modern sticks that we use these days. Huh. And so it has a, a clarity of sound, a little bit more of a thinness, but but just absolutely makes everything ping. And you know, that's yeah. the same um, type of quality that we associate with Bill Canto singing, where it's very facile. Um, Paganini was 
you know, just about the, the time of Beethoven even. So so quite quite early. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't realize that. But of course, he mostly performed his own music. Um, you know, he would mm-hmm. go and play all these virtuoso variations on popular tunes. And he didn't perform the caprices a whole lot because they were almost like too serious for his audiences. So- he definitely did have pieces that were full of circus tricks and, you know, <laughs> popular melodies that he himself hadn't written. Um, his concertos are gorgeous. You know, the s- slow movements are like arias for the violin. Um, but they're a little more conventional harmonically, whereas the caprices are um, definitely more wide-ranging. I'd love for you to define the term caprice. So, yeah, can you tell us what sure. a caprice is? Yeah, so a caprice is akin to, you know, the term etude, and um, but they're not mere study works. You know, they're not just didactic exercises. Mm. Um, you know, caprice also implies... Um, you know, like fantasia. So, you know, you're supposed to just be very imaginative with what you create, you know, because these are for one instrument alone, you know, you can definitely play with the ebb and flow of it without having to worry about ensemble with anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the onus is on you to make it interesting all by yourself. Um, so you've got pros and cons there. But um, yeah, they're just... Um, Really, little little creative gems and um, fantasies almost. So um, each one has its own structure. You know, there's the rondo number nine, the theme and variations of number twenty-four. Some of them have, you know, outer sections that par- are parallel with a contrasting middle section. Some of them go through different types of moods, and some of them are all in the same atmosphere all hmm. the way through. So he was definitely being very experimental. Um, probably number 24 is the quintessential caprice, that particular theme, that Peg, which is Paganini's own tune that he then writes a whole set of variations on. That tune has been used by other composers after Paganini who wrote their own variations for it, hmm. including the famous one that Rachmaninoff wrote for piano and orchestra. Um, and what's interesting is that in the middle of the Rachmaninoff set of variations, there's a a beautiful melody. So the Paganini tune, excuse my singing, but it goes dun And the Rachmaninoff melody And so we think, oh, that's a typical soaring Rachmaninoff, you know, mm-hmm. lyrical p- passage. But actually, it's just Paganini's melody turned upside down. <laughs> so it's still <laughs> um, still a variation. It's kind of pretty cool what Rachmaninoff did. Nice. And, you know, and then uh, people of other genres have written variations. There's a wonderful bluegrass violin version um, that Richard Green did called Pagan Annie. <laughs> so... Uh-huh. This, this tune is just, you know, actually one time when I was hanging out backstage with Slash from Guns N' Roses, I was playing some different stuff on the violin. Um, at one point I launched into the, you know, this particular Paganini piece, and some of the guys in his band go, hey, that's the 24th Caprice. So they, they knew it. Um, <laughs> nice. It's definitely popular in the rock world as well. Yeah. So this is a fun one because, because it has so many variations. Each variation does something different, so you get a whole diversity of effects just within this one Caprice. So it sounds like Caprice is very close to it, like Capricious. It's not necessarily a particular form. 
it's sort of a yeah. like flight of fancy almost like a like very a well said yeah okay very well said okay uh, that's yeah, it yeah. absolutely <laughs> um now nowadays we tend to use the word capricious mostly to mean you know something like um I don't know, unreliable almost, uh-huh. <laughs> or, um, or maybe playful. And, you know, interestingly, he does have a couple of playful caprices. Numbers 17 and 19 are particularly light, lighthearted. Number 13 is very mischievous, yeah. um, each of which have more fiery intersections in co- that contrast. The beautiful kind of um, earworm, um, droney melody in number 20. And, you know, then a uh, very sort of intriguing, mysterious colors in number two and six. Just such so a these wide are like range. moody pieces. Um, so, so uh, okay, I'd like to hear if you have a, an example you can point out on the album of the um, the sound that this different kind of bow makes. I would love to hear some of that. So, yeah, I think I think you should go for number twenty four. It's so tempting to want to start this one really strong and exciting, but actually Paganini indicates piano, which means soft. Yeah. So he wants you to play it, you know, more light and, um, you know, kind of leave you with some anticipation. Yeah. That sounds like you're just sort of like skipping along. Yeah, there's the bow flying around. Yeah. Is this so, one I love? So pr- presumably... You know, changes have been made in bows over the years to improve performance, I'm guessing. Well, now, I don't here's, know, but. here's where I would beg to differ. All right. In art, unlike with technology, in art, change doesn't always mean improvement. It uh-huh. might improve it for certain purposes, but not inherently overall. We would never say that all of the painters of the 1900s are categorically better than all of the painters of the 1800s who are <laughs> categorically yeah. better than all the painters of the 1700s. And, um, you know, the Baroque bow does things that the modern bow doesn't do and, and vice versa. It's just what's the best tool for the job, for the particular language. Um, now, there's a famous um, older 
solo violinist colleague who disagrees. I won't name names, but he's famous <laughs> for having said, why would you ride a horse when you can drive a car? <laughs> well, clearly the car can, you know, go faster and you don't get rained on. Um, there are advantages to the car, but what happens if you need to leap over a hedge? So yeah. <laughs> sometimes you do need that horse. So, um, <laughs> You know, it's just a question of, it's like if you were golfing, um, I've never golfed, but you know, you would, if you were golfing, you would have to choose whichever is the iron that's going to work best for that particular shot. Yeah. And so I like having a whole set of different bows in my arsenal and okay. picking the one that best fits the music. Okay. Now, I wouldn't want to play Brahms with my transitional tort. Um, mm-hmm. Because that it wouldn't be strong enough, it wouldn't have the, it wouldn't be able to dig in and get that that fat sound, that sustain. Yeah. Um, but the transitional tort works better for Paganini. Hmm. So, so okay. Now here's the part where I want to hear about your relationship to this music. Obviously, you've chosen to play these pieces. You put out this double CD of Paganini's works. You but you go kind of way back f- with this music don't you, with Paganini's music. So tell me about that. I started violin lessons when I was three, and when I was six, my mom bought an uh, LP of Itzhak Perlman playing the 24. And I, it was my, my bedtime bribe when I was a little girl and didn't want to go to sleep. My mom would say, if you'll just be good and close your eyes and lie down, I'll put on your Paganini record. <laughs> and so just listening to them in the dark and hearing all the things that are possible. Oh, you were a little music nerd and, from that? tender age. Oh, totally. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so it just really inspired me to want to practice and get good enough that I could play them myself. Yeah. And um, finally, when I was 10, my teachers assigned me my first caprice. Actually, it was number 24. I jumped in the deep end. And, um, you know, then I just learned one at a time till I'd finished them a few years later. Mm-hmm. And then after that, um, one of the things that I aspired to do and had no idea whether I would be capable of was performing all 24 in a single concert. That was a feat that was first achieved by Ruggiero Ricci. And you know, Gideon Kramer had had done that. Only a handful of violinists in history um, had ever performed all 24 in a single concert. And, um, you know, it's a technical challenge that's yeah. just above and beyond. You know, you have to train for the marathon. So I didn't know whether I could actually do it, but I wanted to try. And so when I was in my early 20s, I started working up to it. And and I did indeed um, succeed in doing that. And at that point, it really changed my relationship to the music because after that, it was like I'd already proved that I could do it. So now what's the point? <laughs> and I realized that playing all 24 in a single evening for an audience mm-hmm. is really this incredible journey through um, just the range of what a violin's voice is capable of. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's really amazing to hear them all in one sitting and the same thing, obviously, on album to sit down and listen to them and just experience, you know, just the, the sheer variety yeah. of what the violin can create. Um, so it seemed like it was time to record them. I felt like I had something to say about them. And um, it's really funny what happened with the recording, though, because I was planning to do the typical album of the 24 Caprices. Mm-hmm. Um, but I realized that I wanted to... Um, be just as respectful of Paganini as I would of any other composer, like, you know, Beethoven or Schubert, for example, from the early 1800s. I wanted to do the repeats that he indicated, and I'm convinced that he really meant it because sometimes he wants you to repeat sections, sometimes he doesn't want you to repeat sections. Mm. So the ones that he does want you to repeat, he must have had a reason. 
And, yeah. you know, the onus is on the interpreter to play it interestingly enough that the audience doesn't mind hearing it again. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't go, you know, chopping repeats that another composer had written. And so why would I take Paganini less seriously? So I decided to do every single repeat that Paganini wanted, but that made the music spill out more than, you know, more than what would fit on one CD. <laughs> so now I had a double album, and because I had a double album, um, that gave me the opportunity to include a few bonus tracks, if oh, you cool. will, and a couple of extra pieces that Paganini wrote for violin alone. Um, his famous set of variations on um, the Piazzello aria nel corpo non mi sento, which are almost like a 24 caprices in miniature because he just goes through so many different techniques in quick succession. Mm. duet for one, which is really a wild finger twister. Um, he actually does something that he doesn't do in any of the caprices. Um, it's where the violin is imitating two instruments simultaneously. One is the violin <laughs> with the bowed voice, and the other is a guitar with a plucked voice, but plucking with the fingering hand. So oh, it's wow. like patting your head and rubbing your stomach um, times a hundred. <laughs> it's nice. really, really an impossible <laughs> finger twister, but... Uh, took it an inordinate amount of practice time, but totally worth it because it's such a charming piece of music. Something that we have not talked about yet um, is this term bel canto. This is a little bit of a departure from what we've been talking about. But, but you know, that term that takes me back to one of our very first episodes of Classical Classroom. And, you know, the way that I learned it, bel canto has to do with opera. But these are obviously violin pieces. So, A, what's up with that? And uh, B, can you remind our listeners what that term means? Yeah, well, bel canto means beautiful singing. It was, you know, a style that had virtuosity, but also gracefulness and and a facile approach to the voice, which is not the, you know, the Wagnerian, um, you know, bombast and thickness, but it's a it's a more light approach where the, you know, if you think about, you know, Mozart's magic flute, you know, with the Queen of the Night aria, that's a good example, but not, mm-hmm. not Italian, but that's one that people probably know what I'm talking about. Uh, but, you know, the composers like Donizetti, Verdi, Rossini, Bellini, um, you know, just mm-hmm. look for any of that on YouTube and you'll get the idea. Um, and so it's unusual that an instrumentalist would have um, you know, been more inspired by non-instrumental music, but that was the culture in which Paganini was living. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I actually coached with an Italian opera coach to make sure that I got the style and, and timing right for all of these Paganini melodies because 
um, you know, it's more closely related to those oh, Italian wow. opera works than to any particular school of That's cool. so, composition. So, so Paganini was actually being inspired, like writing this music sort of based on this bel canto opera. Yeah, style. some of his work. Well, if you listen to Caprice Number no. Twenty One, for example, uh-huh. it sounds like it should have had lyrics, huh. um, and it's 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 an aria right there. Only he wrote it for the violin. And, so, and then, so you, in turn, were consulting with somebody about the like opera to inform your own performance. Like, how did how yeah, did that totally. change the way that you were playing the pieces? Because I'm I'm assuming that you did that for this particular album. That you yeah, and I've also you know I've also played for him when I was working on the concertos uh-huh. um, recently, and yeah, it's a lot of insights. Um, and just kind of, you know, honed my interpretation that much more. Yeah. Did it, like, I'm just curious because voice and, well, I don't know. I guess voice and violin are about as close as two instruments can get. You know, I guess violin yeah, is closest I mean, to the human voice. You know, the good thing about violin is, you know, when I have a cold, it doesn't affect my tone. Uh-huh. And then, you know, when I'm playing, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I don't have to stop and take a breath. I can sing endlessly. Um, mm-hmm. So we've got some advantages over singers, but um, we also have to try to make meaning of the music without the advantage of words. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we have to really tell a story and, yeah. you know, be bit that much more um, explicit about what it is, what the emotions are that mm-hmm. we're expressing. So what kind of, I'm curious, because I know you are very into challenging yourself. You've played these pieces in a cycle live before. So what kind of like crazy performative challenge are you holding yourself to now with this new recording? Like when you take this out to audiences, what are you doing differently, I guess? Well, actually, um, I decided to use that early bow shortly before I went into the studio to record them. So I have yet to perform the cycle with the earlier bow. Oh, I've okay. I performed it with the modern bow. So I'm looking forward to that. Cool. Um, and, you know, that'll be that'll be fun to see how that feels uh-huh. on a stage as opposed to just in front of the microphone. But it won't be any harder of a challenge than what I've already done before. So it'll just be a little different artistic flavor. Um, gosh, I, there's always always more going on. I've got... Um, a number of newly written concertos that I'm playing next year, um, including a couple of premieres. And um, I'm going to be embarking upon the cycle of Corelli sonatas. Corelli is actually the teacher of the teacher of the teacher of the teacher all the way back in a direct line of teachers to 1700. And I've always loved his sonatas and um, have never done all 12 of them. So I'm working on that right now. And um, yeah, never a dull moment. Well, if you bring any of this to Houston, Rachel, please stop by and say hello. It's been great yeah, talking actually, to you. Yeah, actually, I am going to be in oh, Houston. Wonderful. Um, my trio is performing a program in honor of Handel for Houston Early Music next season. 
Um, I think it's in the spring, but I'd have to look it up. But I'll be in town. Nice. Um, so I'll yeah, we'll definitely have to say hi in person finally. <laughs> right. And hopefully finally. you can. Hopefully you can come to my concert. I'd love to. All right. Well, man, thanks very much for being back on the classical classroom today. You are always welcome back any old time. You're basically part of the family here. After three uh-huh. times on the show. So. Well, thanks so much. Glad to <laughs> glad to know it's still going strong. All right, everybody, that does it for another killer episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to HoustonPublicMedia.org slash Classroom. Email me at dclay at HoustonPublicMedia.org. Follow us on all of our social mediums. Subscribe to us, rate us, and review us on the iTunes. Thanks today to audio producer Todd Sheriff Harry S. Truman Hulslander for his virtuosic sitting and staring into space while I spoke. Thanks to Mark DiClaudio for his piercing donut eyes. Thanks to the notorious RBP for being here today. Thanks to me for saying words. But most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>